I really don't even know where to begin. I have been wanting to sit down and record an episode for a while now, and I actually did record a few episodes that I need to just edit and upload. I was not happy with the audio quality because it's summertime and we just went through a period of really high temperatures for what felt like a very long time. It was like over 90 degrees, even over 100 degrees a couple times. So it's just been very hot and I don't like air conditioning so I have to keep fans going and normally I'm very comfortable with that but running a fan and trying to record audio just doesn't work. It makes the audio quality complete garbage. So that has been the struggle. That has been the delay. The other thing I wanted to do is say thank you very, very much to my newest supporter, Jamie Spencer. Recently became a supporter of Path of a Green Witch podcast, and I cannot thank you enough. I really appreciate your support. I also want to thank all of my other supporters, Nicole Mims, Tori Poskel, Jason Holt, Ray, and John Shields of course. Thank you guys so much. Your support really helps me tremendously. I hope everyone is having an amazing summer. Before I get into what I want to talk about in this episode, I have to mention that I went to the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens recently and it was gorgeous. It was just so beautiful. It's such a cool place. It's up in Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, which is not really close to anything, but it's definitely worth the trip. There are so many other things to do in Booth Bay Harbor as well, so if you're planning like a summer vacation or something like that, I would highly recommend Booth Bay Harbor. They have this Cabbage Island clam bake tour that's really cool if you're into clam baked seafood. They take you out on a ferry ride to a private island and their little beach with games and things set up. It's like a great thing to do as like a little family trip or something. And then they do the whole clam bake meal for you, which is like really nice. And then you take the ferry ride back to Booth Bay Harbor. There are also like day fishing trips you can do. I did one once and I caught, I think it was a bass and then we like grilled it and ate it. It was so delicious. But the botanical gardens are just so beautiful. So they have a butterfly garden normally, like it's always there. And that's really cool. You go into the area and the butterflies are all flying around and they land on you and all of that, which is like so cool. It's just so beautiful. But they had this special exhibit about, why can't I think of the word when butterflies are little. It was a caterpillar exhibit. So they had all the different kinds of caterpillars and some of them were like metamorphizing into butterflies. So they were like wrapped up in their little chrysalis. And it was really cool because the people who were running the exhibit were very knowledgeable about all the different types of caterpillars. And a lot of them camouflage so well that it was like impossible to even find them unless you're an expert and you know about them. I feel like that special exhibit was probably one of the coolest things but even if they didn't have that there that day it would have still been amazing another cool thing though about the exhibit and the people running it you know I was asking tons of questions just because I tend to nerd out on random things and one of the people who was explaining all of the different details about the caterpillars kind of casually mentioned that they were from Brandeis University and I'm like really like I was shocked because Brandeis University is in Massachusetts it's actually in a town very close 
to the city that I grew up in and I actually went to Brandeis University like I lived there on campus and everything that was like my college experience I guess it would have been my full college experience if I hadn't dropped out and left abruptly but um yeah that's just an interesting part of my life story so anyway I was like oh really you guys are from Brandeis I went to Brandeis I stayed in North Quad Cable and he's like really like you don't often meet other people who've gone to Brandeis it's a relatively small school and it's a really good school don't get me wrong but it's I say in some ways kind of unique maybe okay it's culturally unique and for me it was not different enough from the culture that I had already like grown up around so Brandeis is basically a Jewish university that's noticeable in certain things like they had a kosher dining hall there were other little things they obviously observed the Jewish holidays and stuff like that and it's a really beautiful campus it's a great school and why didn't I stay because I was forced to go actually I did not want to go to college right after high school I wanted to explore other options if I was a wealthy person I would have wanted to like travel the world or something but I just wanted to get a job and kind of like figure out what I wanted to do with my life I didn't want to be at Brandeis University at that time anyway the coastal Maine botanical gardens are amazing if you have the opportunity to go I highly recommend it I am going to include a link for their website in the description for this episode so please check it out and like I said it's located in Booth Bay Harbor Maine if you don't know anything about Maine it's the state that is in the far northeast corner of the United States and it has a really long coastline. It's interesting that Maine used to be part of Massachusetts like back when it was the Massachusetts Bay Colony and all of that but now Maine and Massachusetts do not share a border because New Hampshire has a little bit of coastline and if you are from Massachusetts and you've ever driven up to Maine you know that you have to be very careful driving through that tiny little strip of New Hampshire which is only like 15 miles but the New Hampshire State Police they patrol that in a way that is actually offensive. I had an issue with them once but I'm not going to go there right now. The reason I'm bringing up the fact that Maine and Massachusetts don't share a border even though they used to be one state is because I want to talk a little bit about the history of this area of New England of Massachusetts specifically but the Massachusetts that I'm speaking of is the old Massachusetts from the 1600s, 1700s, and so on. I want to talk about that because as a person who was born in Boston, raised in Massachusetts, lived here my whole life, I always wondered where were the Native Americans? And back when I was at Brandeis, living in the dorm, we always had like friends over. Okay, so basically, I probably should not have had the opportunity to stay in the dorm because I was literally from the next town over and there were lots of other students from the area who did not get housing and they couldn't always afford to commute back and forth. It was very expensive. You know, you're in college or whatever. And so we would let people crash in our dorm.
dorm. And the only reason I mention this is because one of the guys who would like crash in our dorm all the time said he was from Mashpee, Massachusetts, which is like on the Cape, Cape Cod. And he said he was Native American. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Because like growing up and going to school in Boston and in the suburbs and everything, I had never met anybody who identified as like a local Native American person. And I always wondered, where did the Native American people from here go? You know, it just seemed so weird that like, we just don't seem to have any, like we don't, we don't have any prominent Native American reservations, not to say that Native Americans should be on reservations at all, but you know, it's just kind of confusing and it's not something that's addressed in school. They talk about the pilgrims coming here and about the first Thanksgiving and how that was like such a pleasant event between the Native Americans and the colonists, but that's not the whole truth, of course. Also, I think a lot of people mix up pilgrims and Puritans because they all just seem like these super religious Christian people who came here and settled this area. Let's get into that a little bit. One of the things that I'd like to mention is we briefly kind of talk about something called King Philip's War from the 1600s. I never knew who King Philip was, and I'll just let you know right now, he was not a European person. King Philip was a Native American man, and he was fighting for his people. And I want to tell that story, so please bear with me. I know this is a long episode already, but I feel like this is really important stuff to know. This is about the very beginning of our country and how the colonists were even able to gain a foothold and colonize the area. I want to talk about that because it's something that I never learned about in school, so I'm guessing that most people didn't learn about it because I don't see why people who aren't from Massachusetts would learn all of this deep Massachusetts history if the people who are from Massachusetts aren't learning it. I'm going to get into that, but first I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the pilgrims and the Puritans, and then I will get into the history of King Philip's War and what happened to the Native American people in this area, Massachusetts, New England, basically. So the information on the difference between the Puritans and the Pilgrims comes from this article from history.com. I will include a link for that. What's the difference between Puritans and Pilgrims? Both sought a different religious practice than what the Church of England dictated, but they were otherwise distinct groups of people. Many Americans get the Pilgrims and the Puritans mixed up. Common thinking is they were both groups of English religious reformers. They both landed in modern-day Massachusetts, and they were both stuffy sourpusses who wore black hats, squared collars, and buckled shoes, right? Well, maybe not buckled shoes. To understand the biggest difference between the Pilgrims and the Puritans, you have to go back to the Protestant Reformation, which swept across Europe after Martin Luther supposedly nailed his 95 theses to the church door in 1517. Thanks to the printing press, non-clergy had access to the Bible in their native languages for the first time. They began to question why Roman Catholic worship services were so different than those of the primitive Christian church. The Reformation was slower to arrive to the British Isles, but England had its own split from the Roman Catholic Church in 1534 when King Henry VIII wanted a divorce and the Pope would not grant it. The newly created Church of England was similar to Catholicism in every way except instead of the 
Pope carrying divine authority, it was the British crown. So who were the pilgrims? Every British citizen was expected to attend the Church of England, and those who didn't were punished by the state. One group of farmers in northern England, known disparagingly as the Separatists, began to worship in secret, knowing full well that it was treasonous. Once they decided that the only way they could be true to their conscience was to leave the established church and secretly worship, they were hunted and persecuted, and many of them faced the loss of their homes and the loss of their livelihood. When it became impossible for them to continue in this way, they began to seek another place to live. And that's according to the director of Pilgrim Hall Museum in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Her name is Donna Curtin. So first, the separatists fled to the Netherlands, which was a wealthy maritime superpower that was far more religiously diverse and tolerant than England. But while life in Holland was peaceful, it wasn't English, and the separatists feared that their children were losing their native culture. So they decided that the only way to live as true English Christians was to separate even further and establish their own colony in the New World. We call them the pilgrims, but that's not actually what they called themselves. They wouldn't have even heard that term in their lifetime. The first usage of capital P, Pilgrim, appeared around 1800 when a group of citizens in Plymouth proposed the creation of a Pilgrim Society to organize the annual celebration of the founding of the Plymouth Colony in 1620. So before 1800, the separatists who landed at Plymouth Rock were known as the First Comers or Forefathers. So that's who the Pilgrims were. Who were the Puritans? So the Pilgrims or separatists believed that the only way to live according to biblical precepts was to leave the Church of England entirely, but the Puritans thought they could reform the church from within. The biggest difference between the Separatists and the Puritans is that the Puritans believed they could live out the congregational way in their local churches without abandoning the larger Church of England. The Separatists believed that they had to completely separate themselves and have a congregational community separate from the state church. This led to the Separatists being on like the outskirts of society. So even if they were educated, they wound up in low-paying jobs, and that was part of the reason that the separatists fled to the Netherlands, where they thought they might have more opportunity. But the Puritans, on the other hand, stayed wealthy, because they were not trying to separate themselves so much. So you might wonder, why would the Puritans be seeking land in America if they wanted to reform the church from within? Well, the Puritans ultimately decided to journey to the New World for some of the same reasons as the Separatists. The Puritans, who already had some money, saw a favorable investment opportunity by owning land in America. And strangely, they also believed that by being far away from England, they could create the ideal English church. So on the one hand, they wanted to reform the church from within, and then on the other hand, they wanted to set up this separate church and make it better than the original one. We know that the Pilgrims landed in Plymouth in Massachusetts, or what is now Massachusetts, in 1620, and the Puritans settled Massachusetts Bay Colony 10 years later in 1630. The Puritans arrived in 17 ships carrying more than 1,000 passengers. They came with money and resources and divinely ordained arrogance. Just 10 years later, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was a Puritan stronghold of 20,000 people, while the humble Plymouth Colony was home to just 2,600 pilgrims. So the Massachusetts Bay Colony had almost 10 
10 times the number of people after just 10 years, and Plymouth Colony, which had a 10-year head start over the Massachusetts Bay Colony, just had a fraction of the number of people. So Plymouth was fully swallowed up by Massachusetts Bay just a few decades later. And because the Pilgrims and the Puritans share a similar backstory, their legacies often got blurred in the minds of later generations of Americans. But the arrogance of the Puritans led to the idea of manifest destiny. And I'm going to get into manifest destiny in another episode, but it's basically about this white supremacist idea of feeling entitled to this land that was already inhabited by Native American people. Some historians get a little frustrated when people confuse the Pilgrims and the Puritans because they actually had very different approaches to their interactions with Native American people. A historian from San Francisco State University named Sarah Crabtree said, it contributes to the myth that the first Thanksgiving and religious freedom are part and parcel of America's origin story. The Puritans and their city on a hill explicitly rejected religious freedom and they never attempted to adopt the Pilgrim's initial fleeting cooperation with American Indian people. So basically she's saying that the Pilgrims actually did want to work with the Native Americans and we know that from some of the stories that we hear about how the Native Americans helped the Pilgrims survive because a lot of them were dying that first year when they got here because they didn't know how to properly grow food here and the winters were very very cold so the Native Americans who were already here helped them and that means the Pilgrims actually had kind of a decent relationship with the Native Americans initially but when the Puritans came they felt like they were entitled to the land and that the Native Americans were less than and they did not have a good relationship with the Native Americans. As this article mentions, within a few decades from the original 1630 landing, the Puritans had overtaken the Plymouth colony, so Massachusetts Bay colony became much more dominant than the Plymouth colony. So I'm guessing that all of the things that started to happen to the Native American people, which I'm going to get into now, were a result of Puritan people's decisions and Puritan attitudes towards Native Americans. Here's where I want to talk about King Philip's War. This is from June 24th, 1675. King Philip's War breaks out. On this day in 1675, Wampanoag warriors killed seven colonists in Swansea in retaliation for a series of injustices suffered at the hands of the English. This raid is generally considered the beginning of King Philip's War, a bloody conflict that would involve every New England colony and Algonquin peoples throughout the region. Over the next year, members of the Abenaki, Narragansett, Nipmuc, and Wampanoag tribes attacked more than half of all the settlements in New England and reduced about a dozen towns in Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies to ashes. By August of 1676, more than 600 settlers had died and 1,200 homes had been burned. An estimated 3,000 Native Americans had died at the hands of the English. On June 24, 1675, Native American warriors from the Wampanoag tribe killed colonists in retaliation for some injustices that they felt they had suffered at the hands of the English. And this raid where these seven colonists were killed is considered the beginning of King Philip's War. The war involved all of the New England colonies and 
and the Native American people from this area. And these are considered the Algonquian tribes. So King Philip, I already mentioned, was a Native American person. King Philip's real name was Metacom. Metacom had a brother named Wamsada. And what happened to Wamsada is the reason that Metacom, or King Philip, got involved in this conflict. So in 1662, the governor of Plymouth Colony summoned Wamsada, who was a young sachem or chief of the neighboring Wampanoag tribe. He wanted to meet with him. Wamsada was distrustful of the Englishman's intentions, though, and he refused to meet with the governor of Plymouth County. So he was then forcefully escorted to Plymouth by armed settlers, and a few days later, Wamsada's men carried their leader home dead. Inexplicably, he had become ill shortly after his conference with the colonial officials. Wamsada's brother, Medicom, who was called Philip by the English, succeeded him as Sachem, and Medicom firmly believed that the white settlers had poisoned Wamsada, and many Wampanoags agreed, and this further heightened tensions between the Native Americans and the English settlers. Okay, so basically, the governor of Plymouth Colony wanted to have a meeting with the leader of the Wampanoag tribe, whose name was Wamsada and Wamsada didn't want to go, and he was forced to go. The governor of Plymouth Colony sent men with guns, basically, to force him to go to meet with the governor, and a few days later, Wamsada was dead. Now, I agree with Medicom that Wamsada was poisoned, but obviously, we don't have any real proof of that. By the 1670s, there were more than 50,000 English colonists living in New England, and they were steadily encroaching on land that was held by native people. The population of Algonquian people had fallen to about 20,000 by the early 1600s, and this was due to diseases brought to America by the Europeans. So by the 1670s, the settlers and Native Americans were no closer to understanding each other in their respective cultures than at the beginning of the century. A reverend named Increase Mather was known to have said, quote, heathen people amongst whom we live and whose land the Lord God our fathers hath given us for a rightful possession. So this kind of encompasses that idea of manifest destiny. This reverend, who was supposed to be a Christian man, is claiming that the people who were already here are simply heathens, and that the land was promised to the colonizers by their god. In June 1675, simmering hostilities erupted into open warfare. Early in the month, following a highly questionable trial, Plymouth authorities hanged three Wampanoag men for the alleged murder of John Sassamon, a Native American who had been raised and educated among the Puritan elite. Medicom was enraged. On June 20th, Wampanoag warriors burned several farms in Swansea. Three days later, a Swansea man shot and mortally wounded a Wampanoag. The attack on June 24th, 1675, was the Native warriors' revenge. Terrified Swansea settlers abandoned their farms and took refuge in garrisons. Plymouth Colony sought help from Massachusetts Bay Colony, and together their militias tried to corner King Philip. But King Philip got away from them, and he fled to his Nipmunk allies in central Massachusetts. In the month that followed, Wampanoags attacked Taunton and Old Rehoboth. They burned much of Middleborough, and they destroyed the village of Dartmouth. Time and again, ill-trained and poorly prepared colonists found themselves thwarted by native warriors who used guerrilla-type tactics and were far more skillful marksmen and could easily pick up and move their camps. But while native people's tactics
tactic of remaining constantly on the move prevented the English from counterattacking, it made it impossible for them to grow and harvest food. The Narragansett, feared and respected for the prowess of their warriors, had initially stayed out of the conflict, but in the late fall of 1675, rumors circulated among the English that the tribe was preparing for war. On December 19th, the English staged a preemptive strike, a combined force of 1,000 men from Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, and Connecticut colonies attacked a fortified Narragansett village. So Massachusetts Bay, Plymouth, and Connecticut got involved in this conflict, but Rhode Island, which was under Roger Williams' leadership, declined to participate in the conflict. This became known as the Great Swamp Fight. Englishmen slaughtered approximately 600 Narragansett men, women, and children. The English declared it a huge victory, but that is a questionable conclusion because the Narragansett immediately joined the alliance of native warriors and killed scores of settlers and destroyed hundreds of homes. By the spring of 1676, the English had abandoned Springfield, Deerfield, Northfield, Brookfield, Lancaster, Groton, Menden, Rentham, Swansea, Rehoboth, and Dartmouth. Algonquian warriors staged raids in Chelmsford, Andover, Haverhill, Woburn, and as close to Boston as Braintree. So like I mentioned, the Native Americans had a tactic of remaining constantly on the move to prevent the English from counterattacking, but it also made it impossible for them to grow and harvest food. So Algonquin food supplies began to run low, and that's a fact that their enemies were quick to notice. In May 1676, the Nipmuc established camps along the Connecticut River, about five miles north of Deerfield, to fish and plant crops. They had recently had a bunch of victories in this war, so they kind of let their guard down, and the English had good intelligence, and when word reached them, 150 men staged a dawn attack. They killed primarily women, children, and old people as they slept. The Nipmuc warriors regrouped, fought back, then pursued the English, killing 39 of them. The Nipmuc's losses were estimated at 200. The following month, the English staged an offensive and forced the Indians to abandon their newly planted fields. In July, colonists resumed their pursuit of King Philip. They captured his wife and nine-year-old son and sold them into slavery. King Philip was betrayed by one of his own men, who shot and killed him on August 12, 1676. Englishmen decapitated and quartered his body. They placed his head on a stake and marched it through the streets of Plymouth, where it remained in public view for years. Colonists systematically hunted down the other Native American leaders, killing some of them on sight and convincing others to surrender with promises of amnesty, then executing them. In September, Massachusetts Bay Colony declared that any Native person responsible for English deaths would be killed and all remaining Indians sold into slavery. Most of the enslaved were shipped to the West Indies, an almost certain death sentence. By late 1676, English settlers had effectively cleared southern New England of its native inhabitants. A small number of King Philip's people, Metacombs, Wampanoags, managed to survive. They sustained their culture in Mashpee, on Cape Cod, and on Martha's Vineyard. So this answers the question of what happened to the Native Americans from Massachusetts and the rest of New England. They were slaughtered in battles and wars, and the ones who were not killed were forced onto ships and sent to the West Indies to be slaves. I wonder why they teach us that the Native Americans and the colonists had a good relationship when that is only the very, very beginning of the story and the rest of it is terrible. I don't understand why they lie 
to us so much throughout our education. It seems very intentional. This history is embarrassing. It's tragic. It's something that most of us today would say was just wrong. The colonists, the people who came here, had no right to view this land as promised to them by God. Nobody has the right to do that, to feel that the spirit that they believe in has promised them something that belongs to someone else so they can go in and harm the person or exploit the people. I just think that that is so deeply wrong, and we all know it's wrong, but I guess when you have this sense that that you are superior to others, you're never going to have any sort of empathy for that person. You're not going to see those people as deserving of any kind of rights. Oftentimes, people see people as beneath them, and they think that giving equality to those people that they see as beneath them would be like taking something away from the ones who feel they are superior. It's an insane notion, but that is the way people back then saw it. Like, the man increased Mather, who called himself a reverend, called himself a man of God, and he believed that the heathen people amongst whom we live, in whose land the Lord God our fathers hath given to us for a rightful possession. This is how he described the Wampanoag leader, Metacom, who they called Philip. He described them as heathen people who did not have the right to the land that they had inhabited for thousands of years. It's just a disgusting. And I think that if they're going to tell us anything about Native American people who were here when the Pilgrims and the Puritans got here, they need to tell us the truth. I don't see any value in giving us half-truths and telling us lies. I just see no value in that. So I hope you found this informative. I'm sorry that it is such a sad history, but I see value in us knowing our true history. So thank you very, very much for listening, and thank you again to all of the supporters of Path of a Green Witch podcast. Thank you to the newest supporter, Jamie L. Spencer, and thank you to all of my other supporters, Nicole Mims, Tori Postgold, Jason Holt, Ray, and John Shields. Thank you guys so very, very much. If you'd like to become a supporter of Path of a Green Witch podcast, look for the link in the description box, and if you're interested in reading any of these articles yourself, or if you're interested in checking out the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens, look for those links in the description as well. Thank you for listening to Path of a Green Witch podcast.